Well, it is, uh, it is awesome to be here with you. Uh, as, as Jeff said, uh, my wife Betsy and I and our son Arjun, we are a part of, of Summit at the Waterford campus. And um, I've, I've never, this is my first time being here at Lake Mary, and, and so it's, it's a treat for me to be here with you all. Um, Jeff also mentioned that I work with an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, which is a national campus ministry, if you're not familiar with InterVarsity. And, and really our, our goal, our purpose, at schools like Seminole State College, Sanford Lake Mary campus right here in your backyard, is to help students and faculty and staff on campus um, explore the intersection of what they're learning in their classes, what they're researching, what they're experiencing in their extracurriculars, to explore that intersection and Jesus. And really, as students are, I sort of think of them like wet cement, right? In college, they're sort of trying to figure out who they are, um, who they're going to be. And as the wet cement of their life is sort of taking form, we want Jesus to be known as Lord in the midst of that. And that these next, uh, those, those two or four years of their college life could determine the next 40 years of their life. And um, so I love doing that sort of the world I come from. Any college students in the house? No, great. Let's pray. Well, yeah, there you are. What's up? Let's pray for the college campuses this morning. Um, uh, but I, I, love, I love college students. One of the things I love about college students is they do not take things at face value, um, especially when it comes to faith and spirituality. So when we read things in God's word or we talk about things that have to do with God or faith, um, they, they love to, to challenge it. Like, how, how do I know that's actually real? How do, I, how do I actually live this out? What does this look like in the world? And something I often t tell university students is that God's word is sort of like hard candy. You can't just bite into it or you'll chip your tooth or strain your jaw, um, but you kind of got to let it sit and you got to work on it and you got to turn it over. And over time, uh, you get the full flavor of hard. Aren't you glad you came to church to learn about hard candy today? Um, and God's word, and especially the book of Jonah, is like that. That you got to sit in it. You got to turn it over. You got to turn it over in your heart and your mind to actually then see it come out in your hands and your feet and applying it. And so I pray that as we come to this, this story in the book of Jonah, that we would be open. Um, and not just breeze past it and be willing to sit in it. I want to say off the bat that the, story, the character of Jonah in this story is uncomfortable through 99% of his book, of his story. Um, there's 1% where he's like happy. So if as you're hearing this message preached this morning, you find yourself feeling uncomfortable, I want you to be encouraged. Because you're probably hearing this message the way it was intended to be heard, the way the original readers heard this story. Or maybe that's my way of saying, please don't kill the messenger. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's step into this uh, for, for God, for whatever he wants to say to us, challenge us, transform us, encourage us. So um, if you have your bulletins or a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. Surprise. Uh, and I'm going to start in chapter 3. We're going to talk about the whole story, but I want to just jump in in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Um, and the book of Jonah is just, in my uh, Bible, it's just one page back in front. I really encourage you to go home and read it, even today. So this is what God's, God's Word says. Chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Skip down to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Oh, snap. It's about to get real. Okay, here we go. I have three things that come out of this text, three points, and they all sort of come, at, um, come out of looking at who God pursues in the story. Three things about who God pursues in the story of Jonah, starting with, uh, number one, God pursues Jonah. God pursues Jonah. To, so to set some of the context for what we just read, I want to talk about what happens before this in chapters one and two. So... In the very first verse of the book of Jonah, um, God calls Jonah and says, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. In the third verse, Jonah runs from God. It says he goes down to a city called Joppa, he pays money, gets on a boat, and heads to a city called Tarshish. Now, to give us some like geographical bearings, there's a slide here. So Nineveh is over there, like northeast, about 500 or so miles. And Tarshish is literally in the opposite direction, right? The contrast couldn't be more striking. God calls him to go uh, east, and he goes west. God calls him to go over land. He decides to travel over sea. And maybe to continue um, the contrast, God decides that if Jonah doesn't want to go to the great city, great city of Nineveh, he's going to send him into a great storm which is exactly what happens. God, uh, Jonah gets on a boat and he heads out onto the Mediterranean Sea and they run into this humongous storm. And there are sailors on board this boat with Jonah. And when they hit the storm, the sailors are freaking out. They're throwing cargo overboard. They're calling out to their gods. It's, and it tells you something about how bad this storm is, right? These sailors have probably made this trek multiple times and probably hit bad weather. But when they hit this storm, they're calling out to God. Right? It's as if, if, like, if you were on a plane, right? And it, you know, if you commonly fly on planes, you know, planes hit turbulence. And the captain says, you know, go back to your seats, put your seatbelt on, we're about to hit some turbulence. Right? Imagine if the captain got on board and, uh, on, on the intercom and he was like, go back to your seats, put on your seatbelts, and start praying right now. <laughs> right? You'd be like, we're all going to die. <laughs> but I'm going to cry out to God. Right? So, so that's what they say. But what is our friend Jonah doing in this Category 5 hurricane? He goes below deck and falls asleep. He falls asleep. Have you ever wanted to escape your reality so much 
that you sought sleep to do that? That maybe there was some discomfort or some anxiety or some pain or some grief in your life and you just didn't want to face it so you ran to sleep. That's, I think, what's happening to Jonah here. See, it's interesting. Jonah just doesn't, um, when God calls him, decide, I'm not going to Nineveh and stay in like uh, where he is. He decides, no, I need to physically relocate to run from God. And then here we see him consciously even he needs to flee from God. Oh, how Jonah ran from God. He falls asleep. But there's a captain on board this ship and he comes below deck and like any one of us, he sees Jonah and he's like, what are you doing? He wakes him up and he tells him, call on your God, maybe he'll take notice of us. And Jonah does nothing. If you read the text, does nothing, which makes you wonder, does Jonah even care? Does Jonah care if they all drown right here? Does Jonah care about any of the other people on this boat? Does he even want to live? The sailors want to live, right? Because they hit the storm, they're freaking out, they don't know what to do. So the text tells us they, they, they do this thing called casting lots, which is sort of like an ancient uh, spiritualized way of like flipping a coin or drawing straws to um, figure out uh, a decision in a situation. And so in this particular situation, they're trying to figure out who might know what we're supposed to do here. So they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. Interesting. And so they ask him, where are you from? What people are you from? Like, why are you on this boat? Who do you think is responsible for this? And then so Jonah tells them, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of heaven who made the dry land and the sea. Now, if I was a sailor on board this boat, I would have been thinking, you tell us this now. Like you know the guy who runs the ocean <laughs> and you've just been conveniently keeping that information to yourself, right? And, and, it, and it's crazy what happens next. We read or we hear this story in popular culture and we miss this because this is insane. So they find out that, you know, this is who he is, that he knows the God who, and he knows who's responsible for this. And he also tells them, I've been running from God and they're freaking out even more. And they are like, what should we do? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it'll become calm for you because I know this, this is my fault. Now, at first, that seems like really noble or sacrificial, Think about what Jonah doesn't suggest. He doesn't suggest, you know what? Let me call on my God and repent and maybe this will stop. Let me turn back to him. Or how about all of us call on God together and uh, turn to him and I'll turn to him and we'll see what happens. Like what better way not to go to Nineveh than to drown right here in the Mediterranean Sea <laughs> and to make other people responsible for your death. Like he could have at least been like, I'm just going to jump overboard, guys, and you'll be all right. But he's like, pick me up, throw me over. It's insane, right? <laughs> His plan. He's still running from God. He's still resistant to God. But the storm is getting so bad, so bad, and they don't know what to do. So they decide they pick him up and they throw him into the sea. And as soon as he hits the water, the entire, the, the waves, the storm, the wind, it goes calm. And Jonah starts to sink into the sea. And he thinks maybe at this point, I've done it, I've gotten away from God. But what does God do? He sends this gigantic fish 
to come and swallow, AKA rescue Jonah. And it's in the fish that we finally see Jonah do what he didn't want to do, which is cry out to God. He cries out to God in this fish. And the text says that he's in this fish for three days and three nights. And we don't know if it takes him three days and three nights to call out to God, but at some point, maybe he does it. And um, God spits, commands the fish and it spits Jonah out onto dry land. And Jonah is rescued. Oh, how Jonah ran from God. And it's interesting to me too, right? Like we catch fish. This is maybe the first time that a fish is catching a human. Like imagine the humbling experience that would have been for Jonah. What is so encouraging to me about this story, what is so encouraging to me is that no matter the extraordinary lengths Jonah goes to to run from God, God is even more extraordinary in running after Jonah. He's even more relentless in running after Jonah. God calls him. He's like, no, I'm not going. I'm running. He sends the weather after him. He's like, I'm going to sleep. He sends a captain who doesn't even know this God to come down and tell Jonah, call on your God. He's like, I'm not doing it. He uses chance, casting lots. The lot falls on Jonah. He has to disclose. And then he's like, fine, I'm going to die. I'm just throw me into the ocean. And even there, God sends a gigantic sea creature to come and swallow him. What's the point? I think the point for us today reading this is that no matter the extraordinary lens that you or I go to to run from God, he is even more extraordinary in running after us. Somebody say amen. amen. Like God is even more relentless in coming after us. No matter the damaging ways that we've sought to escape reality through uh, selfishness or addictions or the things that we have done that we're not proud of, no matter the things that we've done to run away from God, God will always outmatch you, outpace you, outrun you with his grace. Many times we read this story and we think it's about a prophet who runs from God, but I think it's actually about God running after a prophet. The way God runs is way faster and better and crazy than even, oh, how God ran after Jonah. See, I think this story is even sort of like a microcosm for what the story of scripture is. That the Christian story, oftentimes we hear it as, um, maybe it's, it's, about, it's about judging you for how badly you've blown it or ran from God. Or maybe the Christian story is about um, uh, training and teaching you how to achieve some level of relationship with God by what you do and don't do. But really the Christian story is about surprising you with God's grace and his compassion, that it's not about achieving something in relationship with God. It's about receiving something in relationship with God. That's the first thing. God pursues Jonah. And in his relentless pursuit of Jonah, we see his pursuit of all of us. Here's the second thing. God, y'all still with me? Y'all still here? God pursues the nations. God pursues the nations, number two. Jonah is a really unique book in terms of like what an Old Testament prophet is told to do because he's the only Old Testament prophet who's told um, not just to preach to his people, the nation of Israel, the Jews, but he's called to preach to another nation and actually go to that nation and preach to them. No other prophet is told to do that. 
And what's so ironic in this story is that Jonah, who's the prophet of God, a spiritual leader, man of God, called by God, God is speaking to him. He's not the hero in the story. He's not the one that responds well to God in the story. It's actually all the other nations that Jonah runs into who respond better to God than Jonah does. When he gets on the boat and he meets these sailors who are crying out to other gods, and Jonah just happens to tell them because he has to that he worships the God who made the sea, they all turn to this God suddenly. And even when they're throwing Jonah into the, to the sea, they're uh, turning from their gods and they're kind of crying out to the God that Jonah has told them about and saying, forgive us. And at the end, it says that they offered gifts to him. They offered sacrifices to him. They made vows to him. They respond to God. Jonah just wants to die, right? When they get to Nineveh and just like that, everybody turns from their wickedness and Jonah's angry. The Ninevites respond to God better than Jonah does. It's these other nations. In fact, Jonah's the only organic life form in the entire story that doesn't really respond to God very well. <laughs> like when you read it, there's, there's a fish that listens to God. There's sailors that listens to God. I mean, the weather listens to God. Nineveh listens to God. Later on, there's a plant and a worm that all listen to God. <laughs> like you're getting it. Jonah's not a good prophet, as you can see. Like he's the only one who's not listening to God, right? Even in Jonah's disobedience, right? It's funny to me because Jonah's called to go to Nineveh and to preach to these people to hopefully save them from destruction. Jonah runs from that. He ends up getting on a boat with people from other nations, kind of accidentally telling them about his God and ends up saving them from destruction, like in your face, Jonah. Like you couldn't even run from God in your disobedience. What's the point God's trying to make? I believe the point he's trying to make here is that God's love, his affections, his pursuit is not restricted to any one people, but has always been for the whole world. It has always been for the whole world. No one people has a monopoly on the God of the Bible and the gospel. No one culture or ethnic people has, a, has the best expression of God's kingdom in the world. And when a people start to think that they're the best expression of God's kingdom, God is really quick to show them, like he did Jonah, that he shows no favoritism, that he accepts women and men from every language and every ethnicity and every culture. See, there's this cord that runs through the Bible. And it's, you, you, it's hit really hard in the book of Jonah. Some people might call it a soundtrack. There's a soundtrack to the Bible. And it's, it's this song about God's affections for every people group in the world. You, right, we walk around Disney, Universal, right? We live in Orlando, and you hear these soundtracks, right, to different movies like Spider-Man, Mulan, Aladdin, Avengers, whatever it might be, and it just takes you back to that movie. There's a song that the Bible plays over and over again when you read the scriptures, and it just takes you back to the universal purpose of God. You hear this song when you read things like in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis where God calls a man named Abraham, and he says, I'm gonna bless you for what reason? So that you will be a blessing to all nations. You're hearing that soundtrack. You go to the Psalms and you hear the psalmist over and over again say that God's salvation will extend to the ends of the earth and you're hearing that soundtrack. 
You come to the book of Jonah and you see the example of faith and response to God being other nations and you're hearing that soundtrack. You come to the New Testament and you see it in the life of Jesus over and over again, but even in his birth, this is such a Christmassy story, so we miss this. But the wise men, the magi who came from the East are not Jews. They were people of other nations who came following a star. And they're some of the first people to worship the Messiah. When you come to Acts and, and, and the day of Pentecost, have Acts chapter 2, and, and all these, uh, the, the, the disciples are gathered there in the room who do not speak other languages, and the Holy Spirit comes on them and they start worshiping and proclaiming God's goodness in other languages. It's as if in that moment, God's affirming worship to him from people of other tongues, right? And then you go to the very last book of the Bible, cover to cover, Revelation 7, and John, who's having this vision of the end of the world, he sees uh, this great multitude of people before the throne of God and before the Lamb of God. And he says, I saw Every nation, every tribe, every language, worshiping the Lamb of God. Every, every. Their distinctions mattered. Their differences mattered. They weren't erased, right? It wasn't like John said, and then I saw a group of people, and they were worshiping God. But every, right? The scriptures are not colorblind. They're very color aware. They're very ethnicity aware. They're very language aware. God has always wanted to build a multi-ethnic family. Somebody say amen. God has always wanted to build a multilingual family of God. Always. It wasn't just that it was like later somewhere in the Bible he decided he wanted to do that. He's always wanted to do that. He's, that's always been his universal purpose. That's the song. That's the soundtrack to the Bible, right? And this isn't some... This isn't some politically correct thing to say this. It's a Genesis to Revelation thing to say this. It's right here in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah. God has always wanted to build a multi-ethnic group, a multi-ethnic family of God. The question for you and I is, will we join God in this pursuit? If this is what God's doing, if this is the way he's moving in history and the world, if this is the song of the Bible, will we dance to it? Will we join God in that pursuit? In our city right now, it is so important and so valuable to get a passport and go when God calls you to another part of the world. But here, even in our city, our city, our, our schools, our, our neighborhoods, our workplaces is ethnically, culturally, linguistically diverse. It's diverse. Will we join God in building his multi-ethnic family here in our church and not settle for homogeneity? Not settle for sameness, not settle for leaders in our, in our staff and in our community groups, in our churches that are all homogeneous, not settle for that when the scriptures tell us that God is doing so much more. You, you hear this again. This is a very popular passage. Matthew 28, Great Commission. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples must be important. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. 
And we commonly hear, you, what do those disciples do? You gotta teach them to obey God, baptize them, all of that. But he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And he's saying that to a homogeneous group of people, to go, these Jewish men, go and make disciples of all nations. And so when I read that text, if I'm, uh, if I'm inviting people to consider God, if I'm inviting people to my church, if I'm inviting people into a relationship where I'm trying to teach them about God and disciple them in my mom's group, in my dad's group, in my men's group, in my community group, if I'm not making diverse disciples, then I'm not following that text. If, if I'm making homogeneous disciples, then I'm not following what Jesus is telling us to do. And, and there's a lot, there's, this is hard candy, right? Like you gotta sit with it for a little bit to consider what is God saying to you. And I feel like there's a lot that can be said in terms of application. Like, what do I do with this? How do we start this? And I just wanna say that um, maybe the first step is for us to slow down and pray. To pray and ask God, Lord, if this is what you're doing, remove my blinders. Remove my blinders to the every, to the distinctions of the people around me. Show me how I can grow in pursuing cross-cultural relationships in my city. Show me how I can pray for my church to reflect the diversity of the community that we're in and not settle for being homogeneous. I think our first step is to pray. I don't want to settle for being a homogeneous, a church. I can't read this and settle for that. God pursues Jonah, number one. God pursues the nations, number two. And lastly, God pursues your enemies. God pursues your enemies. This might be the most challenging part of this story. In the first three chapters of the book of Jonah, it's just four chapters. In the first three chapters, you're not fully aware, like why does, sorry, I don't wanna fall off the stage keep looking down. Um, you're not really sure why does Jonah resist um, God so much. You're not really aware in the first three chapters. When you get to chapter four, it becomes abundantly clear. In the text that we read, uh, it says that God, Jonah obeyed God this time. Like the first time he didn't obey God, he didn't go to Nineveh. This time he obeys God, he goes to Nineveh. And in verse three, he gets to Nineveh and this is his message to them. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's eight words in the English language. And what happens? The entire city turns from their wickedness. I've probably said over a thousand words this morning and somebody's still falling asleep. But, but Jonah says eight words and everybody turns from their wickedness, right? It's such a limited message. Like he doesn't me mention God. He doesn't mention like turning to God. It's almost as if Jonah's saying what he hopes will happen. It's like, sorry, Nineveh. No, it's not even sorry. Like, you're going to die. Peace. Like, it's just, like, he doesn't even say, like, 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. And then, and, 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 but still, even with that, even with those eight words, like, the entire city turns from their, their wickedness and God relents. He decides not to destroy the city. And Jonah, as we saw, gets angry. And Jonah essentially says to God in chapter 4, this is what I knew what was going to happen. This is why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew if I came here and I preached to them, they would turn. And I knew if they turned, you're such a softy God. And you, 
you would relent and not destroy them, which is exactly what I did not want to happen. Which is exactly what I did not want to happen. Can I just give you something free right here? This is an aside, this is just free. Uh, you don't have to pay for this. Um, <clears throat> When I'm on campus, often I'll hear, uh, I'll hear common objections to the, to the Christian faith, specifically about religion in general. But things that I'll hear is um, that the God of the Old Testament seems so much more cruel and oppressive and wrathful. But the God I see in the New Testament seems like so much more gracious and nice and, and, and loving. Right? Seem, they seem different to me. Or I'll hear something to the effect of like, when I look at the world, I see so much suffering and damage and so many like, uh, at such a macro level. Um, but God seems so aloof to it. He doesn't seem involved. Like they'll complain that God isn't more um, like loving or I- intervening in the world. Um, when I read this story, this part of Jonah in particular, it's interesting to me because you have somebody in the Old Testament complaining that God is too merciful, that God is too loving, that he's too gracious, that they're actually offended by how gracious God is. I'm just going to give that to you and you can think about that, right? So uh, let's get back to it. So Jonah's anger is so much, he would rather die than live in a world where Nineveh is spared. And it's important here probably to know that um, Nineveh, some background on Nineveh, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was a very uh, oppressive, cruel nation to their neighbors, um, but specifically to the Jews, um, and specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jonah lived. They threatened um, the northern kingdom. And so you can imagine what Jonah maybe felt like being called to go to to this nation that's an enemy of his nation and his people and preach to them. I mean, maybe some modern day examples of of this would be like like a Holocaust survivor who's called to go and share God's love with an SS Nazi general. Or maybe... It's like a, a, white, a person who's a part of a white supremacist group in this country meeting Jesus and then being called by Jesus to go and share um, who he is with any ethnic minority in this country. But I think, it's, um, I think it's too easy for us to claim that Jonah was some obvious bigot, that he was some obvious, uh, um, had obvious racial prejudice in his heart and miss the relevance of this story to us. Because Jonah's racial prejudice and his ethnocentrism wasn't overt. It was really subtle. It was really subtle. When you, when you see, no one knows about it except God. When he gets on the boat with these other nations, it's sort of subtle that he doesn't really care about them and what happens to them. But he doesn't tell them. It's really subtle when he gets to Nineveh and he's like, 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. But he doesn't say, I don't care if you perish. It's only when he meets God and gets angry at who God is showing his grace to that we see his prejudice. And whether it was um, because Jonah, because the, uh, the Syrian empire threatened his people and that's why he opposed them or because of the, the national pride he had for his people really doesn't matter here. Because what Jonah did is he saw the people of Nineveh as the other. He saw them as the other. And when you see somebody as the other, you reduce them. You reduce them. 
I remember the day after the September 11th attacks happened. I uh, was in high school at the time and I came into my first class and I walked to my desk and I sat down and I remember the um, friend at the time that I had turned around, who was sitting in front of me, turned around and he looked at me and he sort of sarcastically said to me, thank you for what your family did yesterday. And in that moment, he reduced me. He reduced me to my difference and my strangeness and even in his sort of mocking joke, reduced the image of God in me. Everybody's created in the image of God and so they're worthy of respect and dignity and love just because of that fact. Not because they contribute to society, not because of what they do or don't do, just simply because they're human. Not because of whether they have disabilities or not, Just because they're human, they deserve respect and love. And when you treat somebody as the other, you reduce that. You reduce that. And this is what we see Jonah doing in this story. And the reality is, my friends, is that we have all done this. I have done this. You have done this. We've all reduced the image of God in people. It is the propensity of the human heart to be focused and care about yourself and people that are like you. And when you start to see somebody as the other, you, you basically focus on um, their, their strangeness. Maybe it starts, it's this very subtle thing that happens, right? You start with just seeing like, what, what makes them different from you? What makes them odd? What makes them strange? And you focus just on those things. And then that moves to, to, to sort of... Um, Uh, mocking or stereotyping or caricaturing people who are like that. And then that moves to maybe not caring about engaging in relationship with those people and moving yourself to another part of town or another place, getting yourself out of proximity from them. And then that moves to not caring about their privileges or their rights or their dignity or their worth. And that finally moves to dehumanizing and devaluing a person. And that's that subtlety of what happens when we other people. And every step of that is wrong. Every step of that is against like God's design for us, the way that we were to interact with people. You see, racism is not just an education problem, though it is. But it's not just that if we just taught people about our differences are great, we should celebrate it. When I cut and you cut, we all bleed red, so everything's going to be okay. Right? It's not just an education problem, though maybe that would help. It's not just a legal and systemic problem, though it definitely is, that the way the human heart works and the way the world works, that there are systems and things in place that, that move and prejudice and marginalize certain groups of people and lift up other groups of people. It's definitely that, but it's not just that. At the root, it's a spiritual problem. Racism is a spiritual problem. Othering people is a spiritual problem. And and all sin is like this, right? It's sort of like, you know, people hear this and and, and our pushback that we have, that I have, is I want to say, I don't have racial prejudice in my heart. But the way that racism works is it's sort of like a conveyor belt at the, at the airport or those horizontal escalators, I don't, people movers, whatever you call it. I like to lay down in them and like <laughs> let, me, let it take me to my gate. It's a testament to my laziness. Um, but it's sort of like that. Even if you're standing still on one of those things, it's going to move you in a certain direction. right? You actually have to turn around and walk against the grain of it. 
right? So with, with racial prejudice and racism living in this world, we have to walk against the grain. We have to acknowledge and own our bias against people, the way that we other people, the way that we, we move into systems and don't care about people who are different from us or are marginalized. We have to work against the grain. All sin is actually like this. Greed is like this. If we live and you have a heartbeat and you live in the US in particular, like greed is gonna move you towards wanting and acquiring and coveting and being more materialistic. It's gonna do that. You have to actually turn against it. You can't be neutral on greed. You have to turn against it and actively move against it by being generous, by giving away wealth, by um, practicing living simply. You have to move against it. You have to ask the Holy Spirit to work on your heart. You can't just be neutral on it. Whenever we talk about things like racism, particularly racism, I commonly hear the feedback, and it may come from an honest place, um, of somebody saying something like, haven't things gotten so much better? Like, slavery is over. We have the civil rights movement. There's so much more acceptance of multiculturalism, or so it seems. And maybe the reason we keep having so many problems is because people like you keep bringing up the problem and talking about the past and all these sorts of things. I think that might be the issue. And I can understand when that comes from an honest place. I can understand the sentiment. But what I find odd about that feedback is that we don't do that with other sins. We don't do that with other wrongs. Like, right, no one's like, people are a lot less dishonest today. You know, we don't really need to talk about deceit and lying and macro problems of corruption and businesses because people don't, it was way worse back then. Or, you know, people are a lot less lustful today than they used to be, right? You don't really hear that. Like, you know, we're just, there's less objectification happening. There's less like macro problems of human trafficking. It was way worse back then, right? We don't hear that. Here's the, here's the thing. Time does not heal sin, Repentance before God is the only thing that heals sin. Somebody say amen. Time does not heal sin. Repentance before God is the only thing that heals sin, right? You wouldn't take this argument from your Wi-Fi connection, <laughs> right? You go to Starbucks and you try to get on Wi-Fi and, and it starts moving slow and you go up to the barista and be like, what's up with the Wi-Fi? And if that guy was like, hey man, remember dial-up? <laughs> Things have gotten so much better. Why are you complaining? You can connect to the internet wirelessly, right? Like you would leave and leave like 50 bad reviews on Facebook, Yelp, and Google and feel so justified. Time will never heal sin. Repentance before God. Turning to God is the only thing that heals sin. And I find it odd that it's only racism that we have this issue with to think that we've gotten over it. We haven't because of the way the human heart works. And I, and I think I, you need to hear me say this, maybe some of you need to hear this being said from the front, that if you are here and you have been othered, you have been on the receiving end of prejudice in some way, whether it's because of your gender, your ethnicity, your class, whatever it might be, you need to hear it said in a church that that was wrong. And especially the times that that's happened in Christian community, that was wrong that is not the way that God is moving. That's not the heart of God. God moves towards actually people who are othered. He doesn't side with the people who are the ones showing prejudice and the ones that the systems move towards. 
So let's get to it. What does God do to address Jonah's animosity and anger in this passage? What does God do? He gives Jonah this object lesson, right? So Jonah goes up on this hill and um, he looks over uh, the city of Nineveh and he watches to see what's going to happen. Is it going to be destroyed or not? And he builds a shelter for himself and he sits there and God causes this plant, this leafy plant to grow up over him and shield his head from the sun. And this is that 1% of the story that I promised where he's good. He's like, I'm so happy, God. Thank you so much for this plant. I don't know if he prays to God, actually. He doesn't pray to God. He's just happy for that second. Um, But then it's short-lived. God provides this worm and it comes and chews away at uh, the plant. And so the plant dies and then the sun comes up and it's very hot. And then God provides the scorching east wind and Jonah grows faint and he's right back where he was. And he's like, I wish, I, I, I would rather be better that I die than live, right? And God comes to him and he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's like, yes, it is. I hate everything, right? Like a toddler might do. And, and God essentially says to him, you're so upset about this one plant that you had for maybe 24 hours. You're so upset that it's gone. Should I not be concerned for an entire city of 120,000 people that do not know their right hand from their left? And that's how the book of Jonah ends. There's nothing else after that. It ends with this question to Jonah, which is so intentional because the book of Jonah actually isn't about, it's not so much about how does Jonah respond. It's about how will the reader respond? How will you and I respond, right? It's biblical inception, right? Like God is asking us, he's trying to address this proclivity in us to treat people as the other. All of our hearts don't naturally move towards people who are, who are different from us. And God wants to address that in us. And his object lesson for us today is the cross. It's the cross. Because at the cross, what do you see? At the cross of Jesus, what do you see? You see this horrible criminal's death, this horrible criminal execution. It is the cosmic consequences of our running from God of the ways that we've blown it before God, the ways that we've selfishly moved inward and moved away from God. We see our accountability on full display. Humanity's attempts to run from God. But at the very same time, you see the extraordinary lens that God goes to to come after us because it's not you or I on that cross. It's not humanity on the cross. It's God in human skin on the cross, taking our accountability for us, taking the consequences that we deserve for running from God, a uniquely Christian message. This is not the same message in other philosophies or worldviews that God himself takes the hit in our place. One lyricist sums up the story of the cross this way. He says, when have you ever heard the story about the hero who dies for the villain? When have you ever heard the story where the hero dies for the villain, only at the cross of Jesus. And we need this message of the cross today to address the divisiveness and the othering that happens every day in our world in small ways, in personal ways, in interpersonal ways, in macro ways. We need this message. 
I remember uh, last week when I, when I shared this uh, message at the Herndon campus, a man came up to me and he, and he told me about, he was from South America when the first time he came to this country and he was in tears and he's like, I just experienced this. I experienced this in my workplace, being othered by others. Another man came up to me and he said, I was in Alabama the other day and I was, I was at this museum where they talk about the history of, of lynchings in this country, where an entire people group was marginalized by another group of people, where African-Americans were marginalized by the majority culture in this country. And the museum talks about what leads an entire group of people to other people over time like this in this brutal, horrific way. And he, and he said to me, he said, we are either objects of evil or we are objects of God's grace. And I was like, dude, you need to preach that. We are either objects of evil or objects of God's grace. And it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like, oh, I'm an object of evil. But when, when the subtlety of othering, when the subtlety of racial prejudice pops up in our life, that's what it is. It's moving us away from God's heart. It's not, it's not receiving the story of the cross that says, yes, when you do something against somebody else, there is forgiveness and grace for you and you can be honest about the ways that you other people. At the same time, when you're on the receiving end of that, there is, there is healing and forgiveness in Jesus because you were God's other. Right? God has the ability to treat all of us as the other. He completely deserves to treat us as his enemy. But the cross tells us a different story. Even, consider, even in the extraordinary lens we go to run from God, he's even more extraordinary in running after us. Consider that God shows no favoritism but accepts people from every nation and tribe and culture, including yours, that he shows no favoritism. Consider that God could treat, uh, treat us as the other, but he doesn't. He moves towards us. And God is asking you and I this morning, should, God is asking, should I not have concern for your enemy? Should you not have concern for people who are different than you? Should we not have concern for this great city? Let's pray. Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come right now. I pray for each one of us in this room, Lord, that you would bring to mind who are the people in our life that we have treated as the other, in our school, in our workplace, those that we work for, those that we work and that we lead, our neighbors, Lord, in our own hearts, where is our bias and prejudice? Would you bring it up, Lord? Would you let us not run from it, Lord? Help us be honest with you about it, God. And Lord, I pray, as, as, I pray that we would pray, that we would cry out to you, Lord, that if the story of your scriptures, if the story that we're hearing, seeing here in Jonah is about you wanting to see the nations, to see your multi-ethnic family built here in our church and in churches all over, our state, our city, the world, God. Help us, Lord, call out to you and ask for you to do that and align with what you call us to next. Lord, we need you. Convict our hearts. And Lord, if we are here and we're walking into church and we're feeling like we have been the other, oh God, I pray for your comfort. 
I pray for your balm of comfort on those of us who need to see you come close to us when you are so different than us, but you draw close to us. Oh Lord, would that give us the spiritual resources to then turn around and do that for other people. In Jesus' name.